We're working our way through the Gospel of John, uh, slowly but surely. And so today we're going to be finishing up um, John chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 45 through 57. How many of you have ever felt hustled by somebody? Like they, they've led you on to believe one thing, but then eventually you begin to realize that um, who they are is not really who they are. They have either ulterior motives, um, but the truth eventually is brought out. I see certain people looking at other people in the room, so maybe people have been hustled by other people in here in this very moment. Um, so several years ago, I had a guy reach out to me who was an extremely friendly individual. We had mutual friends, and everyone that I knew highly recommended this guy. Like, this guy is a class act. He is a, a great guy. Well, he wanted to have lunch with me. And at lunch, he asked questions about my wife, about my kids, about um, everything going on in my life. At the time, we were working through um, the, the plans for Harbor Community Church. And so he's asking about the church plant. How can he help and how can he serve us? And I'm like, man, this is a, a, a nice guy. Like, we could be friends. I, I see a, a future friendship brewing at this very lunch. Um, but as we began to talk, I began to realize what his true motives were, right? Like, this guy's not just interested in having lunch and learning more about me. He, he was looking to sell me something right like he had a product that he wanted to sell me and so therefore or sell to me and so therefore he began to um, try to sweet talk me into purchasing that which he wanted so over time his true motives were exposed and brought to light he wasn't truly interested in a friendship he was interested in selling me a product and ironically we really needed the product that he was selling and so I actually bought it uh, <laughs> But that's beside the point. But the moment that he made the sell, he was no longer interested in the friendship that he was trying to cultivate, right? I quickly learned that where he appeared concerned for uh, myself and my family, he was really concerned with himself and his business, the growth of his business. In today's passage, we're going to begin to see the true state of the religious leader's hearts. So ever since John 5, we've been noticing this group of people grow more and more frustrated with Jesus. And that group of people is the religious leaders, the Pharisees, right? And so they've claimed that Jesus has broken the law by healing a man on the Sabbath. They've uh, claimed that Jesus has broken the law by claiming to be God. They've hidden behind this zeal for God's law. But in reality, what we're going to begin to see today is that all of this is a cover-up for their true motives. And their true motives is that they could care less about loving God and that they could care less about loving their neighbor. All they're really concerned about is their own status, their own power, and their own authority. They're afraid of losing that, and so Jesus is a threat to their um, power and authority. And so when they're confronted with the truth about who Jesus is, rather than submitting to him in belief, they reject Jesus in order to preserve their kingdom and their power and their social rank. I just got an email and my phone is not on mute or my computer is not on mute, so I'm going to mute that really quick. But in following the most miraculous miracle that has ever taken place up until this point, 
in the clearest sign that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, they devise a plan to kill Jesus in our passage today. A crazy solution that they come to. So where the evidence is clear that Jesus is the Messiah, they look past the evidence in order to preserve their fame and their power and their authority. But what's remarkable is that we're going to see in our passage today is that their plan to destroy the Son of God is all a part of God's plan. And so where, they, where they're thinking about trying to eliminate Jesus by killing him, they're actually helping him accomplish the very purpose of him coming into the world. And so what we're going to really camp out today is two points. First, we're going to look at the idolatry of the religious leaders and so how the fear of losing power prevented the religious leaders from believing and trusting in Jesus. I think there's application for us there today. But then also we're going to notice and camp out on the sovereignty of God in the midst of that idolatry. And so how God used the hard-hearted plan of Caiaphas to carry out his predetermined plan to save the world. It's truly magnificent when we begin to dig into it. So before we get there, let's just kind of refresh our memory of what we've learned thus far in John chapter 11. So this is the end of John 11, so that means that this is the tail end of a story that's being told. So at the beginning, we're introduced to a family, and in that family is who? Andrew? Lazarus. Not Lazarus, Lazarus, okay? So, so we see this family, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, this, this intimate family. Um, Backstory, if you're new here and you're like, why was that an inside joke? The first week in John chapter 11, I called Lazarus, Lazareth, the entire service, and everyone laughed at me, but nobody told me until after the service. So there's an inside joke there. But, but what we see at the start of John 11 is that there's this intimate relationship between Jesus and this family. Jesus loves this family, and this family loves them. But when Lazarus becomes sick, what we ironically see is rather than Jesus rush to his aid, Jesus stays where he is. And so because Jesus loved this family, he stayed when he heard that Lazarus was ill. He allowed his illness to continue and ultimately lead to the point of death. And he does this because he knows that he will raise Lazarus from the grave. He knows the end goal of this suffering. He knows that God's glory will be displayed through Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. Well, two weeks ago, we saw that very thing take place. After Lazarus had been dead for four days, which is an important detail, this man's dead dead. Like he, he hasn't just previously died and he could just be in this state of sleepiness. Like, no, this guy is dead. There's a stench coming from his grave. He is dead. And in front of a large, diverse crowd, Jesus calls Lazarus from the grave. So he yells out, Lazarus, come out, come forth, and out trots, out trots Lazarus, right? Like he comes out, still wrapped in his linen clothes. And Jesus tells the crowd, go and unbind him. And so Jesus here performs, has up until this point, has performed many signs, many miracles, but this miracle, besides his own personal resurrection, which we will see in the end of the gospel, is a clear proof or a clear indication that Jesus is not just some man. He is, in fact, the Son of God. He is, in fact, the Messiah. 
As we saw in John 1, the creator of all things has now become flesh. The creator of all things is Jesus. The word become flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. In him was life, and without him nothing was made, as we see in the beginning of John 1. And as we see now in John 11, he is the one who possesses power over both life and death. He is the Messiah who Israel has been anxiously waiting for. He is the one who possesses power to defeat the greatest enemy, which is sin and death. And what's crazy is at the end of John 11, or the passage that we looked at last week, we or from this point on, we don't really hear much more about Lazarus, right? So at the start of John 12, we see Jesus go to this celebratory dinner with Lazarus and Bethany. And then we see the religious leaders want to kill Lazarus because a lot of people are believing in Jesus. But that, that's the extent of it. And so here's the thing. I have a million questions that I want answered in regard to what just took place. So when Lazarus came out, did he stink? Did the stench go away? Did he look deformed? Like what? He had been dead for four days, so he was decaying. What did he look like? Did he come out dancing, excited, or was he sad because he's no longer present with the Lord because he died? Like what is going on within the life of Lazarus? John spares us no details. Did John later on write a book called 5,760 Minutes in Heaven? Like some of the popular books going on right now. Like what is going on within the life of Lazarus? What took place during this miracle? John gives us no further details about Lazarus or this miracle. In verse 44, if you look in your Bibles, we see Lazarus come out of the grave. And Jesus tells everyone to unbind him. We don't even know if everybody does it. We can assume that they do it because of what happens later on in John 12, but that's the extent of it. And then in verse 45, to start out our passage today, John transitions into the response of the crowd. And so let's dive into our passage. Let's first look at verses 45 through 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So what, so what the, that tells us, how John starts this passage, what that tells us is that the purpose of this story is not about Lazarus, nor is it even really about the miracle itself. The purpose of this story is to show us how God is glorified through the exaltation of Jesus. And so the quick transition from the miracle itself and what all that took place to how people are responding now should leave us and should force us to ask the question ourselves, what is my response? What is your response to this miracle? How have you responded to Jesus in light of what's taking place here? And what we see in this passage here is that you have two options when it comes to Jesus. You can respond in belief. Or you can respond in rejection. There's no middle ground of, I'm not really sure about Jesus. You either respond in belief or you respond in rejection. You either respond in submitting to him as Lord or you respond as rejecting him as an enemy. So the farther we get into our passage today, the more we're going to begin to see what that rejection looks like. And then next week, we're going to have the opportunity to see what 
true belief looks like. So where the, um, the religious leaders here, they're going to reject him by preserving their own uh, title and power, and they ultimately devise a plan to kill him. Next week, we're going to see Mary pour perfume on Jesus, wiping his feet, worshiping him. So we're going to see the stark contrast between responses. But what we see here is that there was a large crowd that witnessed this miracle performed by Jesus. And now there's this great divide when it comes to people responding to him. So first we see that many believed. And after seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the grave, they conclude Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. Behold the Lamb of God. They believe in him. But then in verse 46, we see that some do not respond in belief. Many believe, but some do not. And those who do not believe go and proclaim to the Pharisees what Jesus has done. And so the way John presents these two responses, it tells us that their going and telling here is not a good going and telling. It's, it's the, the opposite of belief. And so, in fact, their, their actions remind me of a lot of the Perizzine household right now. So I'm, I'm a father of a two-and-a-half-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. So Kayla and I hear a lot, Daddy, sissy took my toys, or Mommy, Bubba hit me, right? So that we live amongst a lot of tattletales, right? Well, what we see here in this passage is that not all people outgrow the tattletale stage, right? Uh, those who do not believe run to the Pharisees with the intention of getting Jesus in trouble. They tell the Pharisees, hey, this is what's going on. And so remember, up until this point, Jesus has been this thorn in the flesh of the Pharisees up until this point. He's healed on the Sabbath. He's claimed to be God. And because of these things, they've sought to arrest him and put him to death. But their efforts have continually fallen short. So when the Pharisees hear this news, they're greatly disturbed. And therefore, they get together to discuss what they should do in regards to this miracle. Let's look at verses 47 through 48. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So first and foremost, the council here would be the Sanhedrin, which would be the, the highest ruling body or the high court of justice in Jerusalem during this time. It consisted of about 70 men. And the men present at this time, both Pharisees and Sadducees, they would have ultimately been the political elite, the religious elite, the, the wealthy, the cream of the crop. The high priest, Caiaphas, which we'll see in a minute, presided over this ruling body at this time. And so what this tells us is that the issue at hand is huge. It's monumental. Right? There's no long, this isn't just some guy who's turned water to wine at a party. This is a guy who's called a dead man back to life. And so get the council together. We have to figure this out. We have to figure out what we are going to do about Jesus. We can't let him continue doing what he's doing. He's causing a ruckus. So as they gather together, they first ask the question, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now, that it may be a small detail that's really easy for us to breeze over, but I want us to camp out here really quickly. Because what we see here is an acknowledgement of the miraculous works performed by Jesus. 
Even Jesus's enemies acknowledge his divine power right here, right? So the people who are going to plot to kill him are acknowledging the signs that he's doing. So let's chase a, a rabbit really quick. Let's, let's speak to the skeptic maybe in the room or equip you as you engage skeptics at work or wherever it may be. Let's ask the question first, who is writing this gospel? Yeah, yeah, John would be a safe answer. Yeah, so the author of this book would be a man named John. John is known as the beloved disciple of Jesus, which means that this is a brother who has walked with Jesus, who has talked with Jesus, who has laughed with him, who's cried with him, and who has witnessed firsthand the things that are taking place. So he's not making all of this stuff up. He's not heard from grandma or grandpa these folks' tales about this Jesus guy. He's a guy who's witnessed it firsthand. But in last week's passage, we saw that it's not just John who's witnessed this miracle take place. We saw that there was a large, diverse crowd that was present, which ultimately speaks to, in my mind, the authenticity of this miracle that's taking place. You have a large crowd that's that's speaking to the reliability of what actually took place. And so the more eyewitnesses you have present, the more reliable your testimony becomes. So let's give an illustration to kind of expound on that. Let's say that your best friend Ricky passes away, and he has the same name as his uncle, Uncle Ricky. Um, no, your best friend's uncle Ricky passed away. It doesn't matter. Somebody passed away that you know closely. And you go to the funeral, and you stand in line with a large crowd to console the family of this lost individual. And you hug the family. You see Ricky in the casket. You watch them bury Ricky in the casket. Now, what would you do if several years later, Judy, Ricky's husband, begins to write a book saying that at the funeral that you were at, that you watched them bury him, what if she starts writing a book saying that Uncle Ricky was resurrected, came back to life, and everyone begins to celebrate and tell stories? You'd be like, dude, that didn't happen. You would go to the press. You would tell other people. That story that's circulating didn't actually happen. The large, diverse crowd that would be present at the funeral would call the bluff of the story being told. So when John, an eyewitness to this miracle, records this account in his gospel, no one present during the time dismisses it as false. In fact, John is showing us in our passage today that this story about Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave is spreading like wildfire amongst people in Jerusalem and all throughout this area. Both those who believe in Jesus and those who don't believe in Jesus are telling other people about this miracle that Jesus just did. And so it's widely understood that that miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave really historically happened. You can't wiggle your way around it. Even Jesus' enemies are acknowledging his divine power at this moment. So if I can lovingly be frank with you for a moment, claiming that this story didn't really happen would be a really ignorant claim. So John recorded this gospel not to make, uh, not too many years after this took place. So in fact, most of his audience would likely still be alive. 
So if Jesus didn't raise Lazarus from the grave, then you would have documentation of people claiming that it happened, didn't happen, but we don't have that. This is a widely recognized story that really took place, that really happened. And even Jesus' enemies are acknowledging his divine power. And these men could not explain away these works performed by Jesus. They couldn't avoid them. They have to confront them. Jesus is healing the lame. He's giving sight to the blind. He's feeding the masses. And now he's raising people to life. What are we going to do? The town is buzzing. Many people are believing in him. The whole town is looking for him. As we will see at the end of our passage today, the word is spreading about Jesus in the miracle that he just performed. And the religious leaders are trying to figure out what to do. And so they're looking at one another, they're scratching their heads, and they're asking the question, what do we do? And they have to figure out what they need to do because if they don't do anything, then everyone's going to believe, right? And if everyone believes in him, then the Romans will come and take away both their place and their nation. They're afraid that the Roman Empire, which really ruled the Jewish nation at this time, will come crashing down on Israel and destroy whatever bit of independence they have at this particular moment. So it's at this point that we see their true motives being exposed. Here in verse 48, we see their biggest concern finally coming to light. They're rejecting Jesus because he's a threat to their place of power and their authority. Their true motives for opposing Jesus are being brought to light. They're not concerned with the law. They're not concerned with loving God, nor are they concerned with hearing from God. They're not concerned with loving their neighbor. They're only concerned with their place and their nation. Our place would undoubtedly refer to the temple, which is the place that they possess prominence and authority in. Our nation is the place that they're ruling over at this time. And so these men are thinking that if, if Jesus continues, if everyone continues to believe in him, then the Romans will catch wind of it and they're going to lose everything. They're going to lose their job, their everything. The very thing that they're finding their identity in has been threatened by Jesus. Their greatest concern is not getting Jesus right. Rather, it's protecting their stuff from Jesus. So they're presented with a dilemma, a, a problem. Do they embrace Jesus for who he is, even if it means they might lose everything? Or do they continue to reject Jesus in order to protect their fame, their position of power. And so what a terrifying reality that it's possible to look past the facts about Jesus and reject him strictly out of a fear of what it might happen to you if you believe in him. They're not rejecting Jesus because he is full of falsehood. They are rejecting Jesus because Jesus has, uh, they're not rejecting him because Jesus has done something wrong. They're rejecting Jesus out of a love for self. So they're asking, what would it look like, right, if, if I really trusted in Jesus? I would no longer sit on the throne of my life. I may lose everything, and we can't have that. And so Jesus was a threat to their kingdom. And Jesus is a threat to your kingdom today, your life. Belief in Jesus means that you have to submit and lay down every part of your life for his glory. It's trusting in him, submitting 
in him, clinging to him. But what we see is they're refusing to do that, and they choose to cling to this idol of their heart. But Jesus in Matthew 16 says, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So we see here that the belief in Christ brings with it trust and it brings with it submission and it brings with it this transformation. And so when you believe in Jesus, you abandon that which you once knew for something greater. And what is that that is greater? That is Jesus. That which you once found your identity in is no longer your identity. Where you were once dead, as Ephesians 2 says, you are now a new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so as a Christian, you are daily proclaiming, I cannot make it on my own. My kingdom, my net worth, my status, my life is not worth pursuing apart from Jesus. So I'm laying down my wants, my desires, and my life so that I might have new wants, desires, and life in Jesus. At the heart of following Jesus is a denying and abandoning of yourself and the things that this world offers. And at the heart of it is a clinging to Jesus. But the more you have, the harder this becomes, right? To the broken and lowly, to the brother who's been blind his entire life, sitting on the, next to the temple begging, the call to come and follow him is an easy, it's an easy decision, right? I'm, I'm coming. I have nothing. I'm broken. Jesus is everything. But to the brother who's this religious elite, who's at the, the top of the totem pole, totem, totem, totem pole. That's a, that's a hard decision, right? Abandoning everything to follow Jesus is difficult when you have much. So uh, when you've gained the world, this is challenging. And so we live in a culture that prides itself in building your kingdom, your name, your fame, your power at all costs. But in following Jesus, you see that flipped. He is your ultimate joy. He is your ultimate treasure that is worth pursuing. And so may we be a people who flip that and say, okay, no, we must decrease so that Christ must be uh, increased. Although you may lose in this life, you know that you have an eternal hope, an eternal inheritance that is being kept in heaven for you by God. And this is an inheritance that no one can take and that cannot perish. But these men cannot fathom this truth. So in an attempt to hold on to this idol of status and power, they reject Jesus, their only hope for eternal life. So what I want you to think through this week personally, and what I would like for you to discuss in your community groups is this question. Community group leaders, softball for you, all right? Softball toss. What in your life are you afraid of God touching? Right? Are you afraid to come to Jesus because you're afraid that he might call you to give up a certain relationship or a certain job or a certain platform, whatever that may be? Are you afraid of giving that up so you've been avoiding Jesus? Are you subtly rejecting Jesus out of a fear of him actually being Lord of your life? Do you avoid confessing certain sins out of a fear of people knowing who you truly are? 
Do you avoid sharing your faith out of a fear of being seen as this silly Christian, and so you avoid it in order to build this image amongst others? What in your life are you afraid of God touching? And may I encourage you, lose your life so that you may find it. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Jesus offers you life and life abundantly. Although you may lose what you currently have, you will gain so much more in Jesus through obedience to him. So rather than submitting to Jesus as king, they're declaring war against Jesus, and they are strategizing on how they can remain king of their own kingdom. Then we see as we continue to read, the high priest speaks, giving direction to their rejection of Jesus. Let's look at verses 49 through 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So first thing we notice here is that this is not a very friendly individual, right? His spiritual gift is not encouragement, right? This, this dude is, is not a nice guy. He begins his formalized prophecy by saying, you know nothing at all. In other words, you're a bunch of idiots, a bunch of big old dumbs. You don't know anything. You wouldn't think he's addressing the, the entire council of Jerusalem at this moment. You would think that he's addressing a bunch of people who are getting ready to board a cruise going to Alaska, saying, you know nothing. Don't you know that cruises are meant to be enjoyed in warm weather? Haven't you seen Titanic? Like, what, how, why is he addressing the council this way? But nonetheless, he has their attention, and he begins to counsel the council. See what we did there? Pun intended. He says this, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What's happening here is truly remarkable, right? This man's using strong, sacrificial language here. From a political standpoint, strictly, Caiaphas is saying that in order for their nation to live, Jesus must die. If Jesus does not die, their whole nation is going to perish. Their enemy will win. Rome will take over and there will be no more Israel in their minds. It's a death sentence to allow Jesus to continue to live. Therefore, Caiaphas hard-heartedly says, we need to put this man on the altar and let him die so that we may live. Does that message sound familiar to you in the slightest? Hopefully it does. You remember back to what Jesus told John in chapter 3? Or what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Better question, what, do you know what Bible verse Tim Tebow wore on his eye black when he played for the University of Florida? John 3.16. Go Knowles, Chase. Um, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world... That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do we see the similarities here? Jesus has already said that this is happening. That's the whole purpose of God sending him. And now Caiaphas is saying it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Hello, Caiaphas, brother, you're preaching the gospel here. Good job for you. Caiaphas, that's what's going on. That's why Jesus has come. God knew that it would be better for Jesus to die than for the whole nation to perish. Therefore, God gave his only son so that whoever believes in him may have life. And so we're now able 
on the, the tail end of it, to, to look back and see that Caiaphas is hard-heartedly and unknowingly proclaiming the gospel. And so what I would like for you to do, discussion question number two in your community groups, is discuss how this declaration by Caiaphas is actually the gospel, right? So really swim around on that, discuss that this week in your community groups. But we can tell that John sees this connection clearly if we continue to read, right? Look at verse 51 and 52. He says this, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what I want us to see here, and please do not miss this, is that despite his ill intentions, Caiaphas is proclaiming the message of God. God spoke through this man here. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that the disobedient act of crucifying Jesus, which was rooted in unbelief and rejection, was orchestrated by God. God never fell off his throne. His redemptive plan will prevail. What man intended for evil here, God is intending for good. The cross, as awful and as unjust as it was, was not God's plan B. Adam and Eve didn't blow it in the garden, and Jesus or God's like, what in the world am I going to do? Okay, Jesus, son, this is what we'll do. Okay, you're going to go. I'm going to send you. You're going to die. No, this was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. It was God's plan before the foundation of the world to cleanse and adopt sinners into his family through the death of Jesus. We see that from start to finish in the Bible. This was God's plan. In quoting the the well-known theologian Drake, it was God's plan, right, for Jesus to die on the cross so that we don't have to. It was God's plan for him to be glorified through the substitutionary death of Jesus. And so we have to understand that the cross was not God's scrambled attempt to make things right when sin entered the world. It was his predestined plan before the foundation of the world to offer his son as a substitute for all of sinful humanity. This is the point that John has been constantly reminding us of throughout this book. No one takes Jesus's life. He laid it down willingly. Jesus came to give life to the lifeless through his death. That's why he came. John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, verse 29, when he sees Jesus, he proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we therefore see that at the very jump of this gospel, the purpose of his coming was to be the Passover Lamb who was led to the slaughter in order to take away the sin of the world. Jesus then, in John chapter 6, says that in the same way that God sent down manna, the same way that God sent down bread for his people in the wilderness to provide life for them in a barren land, in the same way God has sent down his son Jesus to provide life to 
the, his people in the midst of a barren land. The purpose of his coming, the purpose of God sending his son is to give life through his death. In John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, Jesus says that in the same way that God came down and led his people in the wilderness at, by this pillar, pillar of fire at night, Jesus says, I am the light of the world who was sent into the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He came to illuminate the darkness and to give life to the lifeless through his death on the cross. It was his plan. In John 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd who came so that his sheep may have life and have it abundantly. He came to lay his life down for his sheep. That's how we know he is the good shepherd. And so Jesus came to give life through the laying down of his life on the cross. This was God's plan. And as John tells us here in John 11, Jesus didn't just die for one specific group of people, Israel. He died for all of humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus died to, as we see in verse 53, gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is helpful news. This is hopeful news for us today who gather in a YMCA in America, in Mobile, Alabama, right? We are scattered abroad, but by grace, we've been gathered in to this family, people from Every tribe and tongue and nation will experience this eternal life through belief in Jesus. So Caiaphas, that brother, was right. If Jesus does not die, their enemy will win. But what he doesn't understand is that sacrificing Jesus would not save them from their enemy, Rome. Sacrificing Jesus would actually save sinners from their greatest enemy, sin and death. He is proclaiming the gospel. And it's in verses 53 through 57 that we see this plan become official. This plan to kill Jesus has become official. And it's here that we see Jesus avoid them for a short time longer. He's not avoiding them out of fear. He's avoiding them intentionally. And what's really interesting in the gospel of John is that really from John chapter 1 until John chapter 12 is this three-year span, and then from John 12 to the end of the gospel is this one-week span. So he's really going to begin to slow down. He's talking in country tone, right? So he's going to talk real slow. Yeah, so he, he's slowing down here. Uh, and so at the right time, Jesus will lay his life down. And we'll, we'll unpack that in just a moment. Um, and, and that right time is Passover. So as Passover is approaching, so too is Jesus' death. And as this time is approaching, everyone is beginning to ask the question, as we see in the passage, where is Jesus? They want to see Jesus. Is he going to show up? And if he shows up, people are going to kill him. So um, let's read these last few verses. We're not going to spend a ton of time digging into them because I really wanted us to spend a lot of time digging into what we've already dug into up to this point. But I do want us to do justice and look at it and specifically look at one detail in these verses. But let's read it. The remainder of this chapter says this. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. 
And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So let, let's camp out on Passover, right? That's an important detail as we work through the rest of this gospel. Do you remember what Passover celebrates? Okay, I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version really quick, all right? Um, if you were to think back to Exodus 12, you'll see where God's people were in slavery in Egypt. So things are not going well for God's people at this time. They're slaves. God hears their cry for help, and he, he devises this plan to, to lead them out of slavery and lead them into the promised land. He sends ten plagues. Um, and as God is preparing to, to lead them out of slavery, he announces this, this tenth and final plague that is going to take place in Egypt. And that plague was this, that he would strike down the firstborn child of every household in the land. As a father of a son, the thought of that, I, I can't fathom. Um, and so that, that's going to be the tenth and final plague. And in order to be spared from this judgment, God gives a command that every family was to slaughter a lamb without blemish and spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And so in doing so, the Lord would pass over their house and spare them from this judgment. So by the blood of a spotless lamb, God's people would be spared from this judgment. The lamb died as a substitute for God's people. The lamb died in the place of God's people. The lamb died so that the nation would not perish. A lamb had to die in order for them to experience salvation. Does that message ring a bell? If we've been paying attention today, hopefully it does, right? That's what we've been seeing throughout this text thus far. The Passover feast which was about to take place, was therefore a time of remembrance, celebration, and reflection of God's faithfulness on behalf of his people, of how they were spared from this judgment and led into the promised land by the, the blood of this lamb. And so Jews from far and wide would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And during this feast each year, a family would sacrifice a lamb in order to celebrate and remember God's faithfulness. So ironically, and according to God's predetermined plan, what they're going to do this year is they are going to sacrifice the true lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who will take away the sin of the world. The timing of this is all a part of God's plan from the beginning. So as the prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, he, Jesus, will be pierced for our transgressions. He, Jesus, will be crushed for our sins. Upon him, Jesus, will be the punishment that brought us peace. By his wounds we will be healed. He will be oppressed and he will be afflicted, but he will not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, Jesus will not open up his mouth. Jesus is the spotless lamb who came in righteousness and justice 
in order to take upon himself the condemnation that each and every one of us deserves. In the same way that Israel was spared from judgment of the Lord during Passover because of the bloodshed of a spotless lamb, so too can we be spared from sin and death by the shedding of the blood of Jesus. And so everybody look at me really quick. If you're sleepy, get your yawn out. This is important. Listen to me. You are not perfect, right? Would we all agree with that statement? You've been wronged by others, I'm sure, but you yourself have wronged others. You have sinned against other people in this life, but most importantly, you have sinned against God. You have wronged God. And your sin brings forth death, and it brings forth condemnation. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away your sin through his death on the cross. This was God's plan from the beginning. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as Christian comes up to lead us in worship, my final question for you today is this. Do you believe this to be true? My question is not, do you have an intellectual understanding that Jesus possesses divine power? Because we see the religious leaders have that understanding, but yet they do not believe. So my question for you is this. I'm asking, have you personally trusted in Jesus as your only hope for salvation? Have you trusted in that? The cross and the resurrection is your only hope for salvation. There is grace and there is mercy and there is forgiveness in Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wicked, sinful things that you have done, the, the sins that are deep into the depths of your heart that you are ashamed of have been dealt viciously with on the cross so that you might be presented before God holy and blameless and above reproach. And that can only be accomplished through the work of Jesus on the cross. So come to him and believe. Trust him. Believe in him. And so the question is, is have you confessed? Have you repented? Have you asked forgiveness for your wrongdoing, for your sin? Have you denied yourself and begun to follow after him? My plea to you is to not follow in the footsteps of the religious leaders, but to trust in him and come to him in belief, because in doing so, you will have life, an abundant life. The cost of following Jesus is high. It demands humility. It demands meekness. It demands you stepping off the throne of your life and bowing down to Jesus, saying that you are king. It requires an open-handedness with our finances, with our earthly possessions. It may lead you away from comfort. It may lead you away from prosperity. It may lead you away from safety. And it may lead to you being mocked, and it may be lead to you being ridiculed may lead to you being less than what you've built yourself up to be viewed as. And it may lead ultimately to your death 
following Jesus. But listen to me, the cost of following Jesus is worth it. When you follow Jesus, he gives you the Holy Spirit, who will be your comforter, who will give you joy and peace in the midst of trials that we will encounter. And he gives you an eternal hope that cannot be perished. It will be there for us. We have an eternal hope that when we die, we will be present with the Lord for all eternity. We will be presented before him holy and blameless and above reproach. So my plea to you today is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after him. If you have not done this and you want to do this today, I will be in the back. Please come talk to me. But if you have done this, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, then let's spend a moment praising the lamb that was slain on our behalf, lifting him up. So let's pray and then we will worship him. Father, we love you and God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. God, we are so undeserving, but you are so gracious and you are so loving. And so God, we thank you that God, you knew that we were gonna fall short that did not catch you off guard. But in knowing that, it was still your plan to send your son Jesus to die for us so that we may be presented before you holy and blameless, that we may be your children. And so God, I pray for anyone in here who is deeply burdened with sin. God, if their faith resides in you, Remind them of the truth that they are not distant from you, but they are sons and daughters of yours. You went to great lengths for them to be presented before you holy and blameless. And so, God, I pray that that truth will rest heavy on their hearts and comfort them greatly and give them joy and peace. God, we pray for purity within the lives of our church. And God, if there's anybody in here who has been rejecting you, who has not come to you and believe, God, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That they would walk away today knowing that Jesus is Lord of their life. And so, God, it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.